Today's reading is from Matthew, chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse 12 to 17, which can be found on page 968. Matthew 4, beginning at verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the word of the Lord. Great, please keep the passage open in front of you, page uh, 968, if you've closed your Bibles, uh, because we're going to be looking at that together. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it all points to Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. And so, Father, as we uh, come to your word, as we read it now, we pray you would take us to Jesus in our hearts, in our lives, bow before him, come to him who is the light. Father, teach us and change us. Amen. Well, we come to yet another passage in Matthew's Gospel in which Matthew tells us about an event in Jesus' life and then says this was to fulfill what was spoken about in the prophets. We have come across this many times already in Matthew, over and over again. Uh, one of the temptations when you're reading Matthew's Gospel, I think, is that when you see those bits where Matthew says that, the temptation is just to sort of skip over them. Maybe that's because we're just interested in the action. We want to know what Jesus is doing. Give us the action. But Matthew over and over again says this was to fulfill. And as we've been going through the early chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we've been learning actually to slow down at that point and to say, well, what, what's Matthew trying to get at here? What's his point? He keeps saying it over and over again. And what we see is that Matthew wants us to know not just what happened in Jesus' life, but the meaning of those events. He takes us to the Old Testament and says, look, Jesus is fulfilling this so that we will grasp the real significance of what's happening, of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and therefore how we should respond to him. And we're going to see all three of those in our passage. And if you want to follow on the uh, notice sheet on the back, you've got these headings there so you can follow through. Jesus' identity, who he is, Jesus' mission, what he came to do, and Jesus' call to repent. That's how we're to respond. So that's where we're heading. So first of all, Jesus' identity. So we saw last week that Jesus was in the area of Judea. And if you're not sure uh, where that is, 
There's a little map for you on the screen. Hopefully you can make that out. In the bottom part, you've got Judea. That's where Jesus was. And he was there because John the Baptist had been baptizing people. But at the start of our passage, we read that John, John the Baptist is, uh, was put in prison. We saw a couple of weeks ago that John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus. He was Jesus' forerunner. He was the warm-up act for Jesus. But now Jesus is in prison. And so John recedes into the background. And we would expect that Jesus would then come into the foreground. If John the Baptist is the forerunner for, for Jesus, and John the Baptist is in prison, we expect Jesus to come to the fore. But we see in the passage, verse uh, 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. So Jesus withdraws. He goes from uh, Judea in the south and goes up north to Galilee. But more than that, He doesn't just go up north to Galilee. You might think, well, he would go back to Nazareth. That's where they'd been living before. But he goes to Capernaum. I don't know if you can see it on there. Capernaum is on the sort of north shore uh, of the the lake there, the Lake Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. Jesus specifically goes there. Now, that is the backwaters of Israel. It is way up north. You've got to be careful. You want to give a you know, like somewhere in the UK. I'm, I'm slightly nervous of doing that in case there's somewhere from a place in the north of, of the UK that, that you might have come from or you might have particular loyalty to. But I'm, I'm going for one. It's like Middlesbrough. Anyone? Good. Okay, we can, we can slag off Middlesbrough. We're okay with that. Yeah. You're from Cumbria. Okay, so you're safe with Bewcastle. Okay, I don't, know, I don't know it, but it's the backwaters. Bewcastle, there we go. It's like he's gone to Bewcastle, way up north, you know, in, in the back of beyond. Now, Capernaum, okay, it was, it was a bigger town. There was a fishing sort of fishing going on there. So there's a bit more going on there, but it's still way out of the way. And you might think, well, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he going to Bewcastle? No one goes to Bewcastle. No one's even heard of it apart from one person. Why, why go there? Maybe he's trying to escape. Maybe he's fearful because John the Baptist has been arrested and therefore, maybe he's just trying to get away from it, from, from that danger. But Matthew tells us that isn't the case. Verse 14. He says, Jesus went up to the north, went to Nazareth, went then to Capernaum, verse 14, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And it is a, a prophecy from uh, Isaiah chapter 9 which is a passage which is often read at Christmas time in churches. A prophecy. We've got the beginning bit of it here in our passage. We'll come back to that in a moment. But it says, Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, way of the Jordan, beyond, beyond the sea, Galilee of the Gentiles. And as the passage goes on, 
It is the passage, you might remember it from Christmas readings, which goes on to say this. Here we go. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah, the Isaiah quote points us to Jesus' divinity. And it does so if you know the context of the bit that Matthew quotes. That later on in the passage it talks about this child coming. And this child, and you've got those wonderful descriptions at the end of that quote, haven't you? Those four things that he's described as. Wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And if, and we know that the New Testament writers would expect you to have the context in your mind as they do these quotes, they give these quotes. Matthew is saying, this is who Jesus is. And he's showing it to us by going up north, by going to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, by going to the Bucha. There, Matthew's saying, Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, which points to who he is. Mighty God. Maybe you're investigating Christianity. Or you know someone who is. A key question to ask is, who is Jesus? What's his identity? The Bible claims that Jesus is God. And gives us evidence for that claim. And there's more than one line of evidence that the New Testament gives us. One line that you might go down, not this line, but another line, is the miracles that Jesus performed. His power to do things none of us could do. Mark's gospel heads straight in on those miracles. That Jesus could heal the sick, cast out demons, calm the storms, and, and raise the dead. What Jesus could do, and the way he did them, points to his divinity. In the words of a song we sometimes sing, only God can do that. So the Bible gives you the miracles and says, look, here's evidence for who Jesus is. But you could also look at Jesus' death and resurrection. These were events uh, in Jesus' life and ministry. These were the events Jesus' life and ministry were building to. His death and resurrection central to the Christian faith if Jesus died and rose from the dead as he predicted then he is who he claims to be another path of evidence of saying this is pointing to who he is and Matthew here gives us more evidence he's writing to sceptical Jewish readers and so he begins by showing how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy Old Testament scriptures and therefore says therefore can you see who he is these prophecies written hundreds of years before uh, before Jesus was born and Matthew piles them up we've seen this over these opening chapters haven't we Matthew piles up the Old Testament fulfillments what have we seen so far let me give you um, a list of, of the things we've some of the things we've seen so far and we're only into chapter four of Matthew We started with the genealogy of Jesus, his ancestry at the start of Matthew. That Jesus was born in the royal line of David, that's significant. 
that he was born of a virgin. That fulfills Old Testament prophecy. That he was born in Bethlehem. That fulfills Old Testament prophecy. That he went down to Egypt and returned, if you remember that. That the family moved to Nazareth. That John the Baptist came as one preparing the way for the Lord. And then as we go through the rest of the gospel, there are more and more fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. That he would heal the sick. That he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. That he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And on and on and on. Many of them are things Jesus could not manufacture. He could not manufacture himself being born of a virgin or being born in Bethlehem. But some, including this one that we have in our passage, were deliberate. Which gives us a couple of things, doesn't it? It shows that uh, there were events that were out of his control that shows that he is the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy. And things that he can control shows he knows he's the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy. And Matthew wants us to see this. And he's trying to help us to come to the conclusion of Jesus' identity. That he is the Lord. He is the mighty God. And if we were in doubt in these opening chapters, do you remember last week when Jesus is baptised? The voice from heaven, God the Father saying, this is my son. Matthew and God the Father want us to know who Jesus is. And the fact Jesus is God's son doesn't in any way take away from the fact that he is divine, that he is God. Matthew shows us Jesus' identity. I wonder, have you seen who Jesus is? If you're investigating Christianity, have you seen who the Gospels, who Matthew is pointing to Jesus being? Second, Jesus' mission. The prophecy from Isaiah doesn't just point us to Jesus' identity. In fact, in a bigger way, it points us to his mission, what he's come to do. To have a look at verse 16. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. They're living in a land of darkness. At uh, this time of year, in this country, can feel dark, can't it? Just on cue, the sun shines through. There you go. But some days it does feel just dark, doesn't it? I mean, it's nice the days are getting longer. But some days it just feels like the sun struggles to get through it all, doesn't it? And of course, if you lived further north, if you lived up in a country further north, you might have months and months without the sun. Well, this says Jesus came to a people who were living in permanent darkness. Zebulun and Naphtali, as we said, were way up in the north, known in Isaiah's day even as Galilee of the Gentiles, and by Jesus' day it was even more so, an even more accurate description, viewed as being in the darkness. But of course that is how the Bible describes the whole world. We're in darkness, and we're in darkness in so many ways. The culture we are in is in darkness in so many things. I'm going to put a few things up on the screen for ways in which we are in the darkness, or things we're in the darkness about. 
We're in the dark about religion. Our culture is, isn't it? Presented with lots of different religious options. The formal religions as well as the sort of majority view which seems to be a settling on a, well, I like to think that. But it feels like people are in the dark about religion. Is there a God or is there not? How can we know? We're in the dark about morality. Well, some things maybe most people will agree are right and wrong. It can be very hard at times to know. What's right and wrong? I mean, even over this last week, there were were debates in uh, things in the Houses of Parliament where they're about gender and gender identity. The Prime Minister's questions, there was controversy over that, with Rishi Sunak controversially accusing Keir Starmer of a U-turn about defining a woman, and then Keir Starmer accusing Sunak of being inappropriate, given the presence of Esther Gay, whose daughter, a trans teenager, was murdered a year ago. And we think, well, what is right? What is wrong on these things? On what basis do we know what's right and wrong? What should children be taught? We're in the dark about morality. We're in the dark about identity. Who am I? What defines me? Is it my gender? Is it my nationality, my sexuality, my career, my family? All are significant, but what defines me? We're in the dark about purpose. What am I here for? What should I live for? Happiness? Family? The good of others? Who decides? Is it just down to me? We're in the dark about death. Verse 16, people living in the land of the shadow of death. And that's where we all live. Uh, We try to pretend we're not in the land of the shadow of death. We try to ignore death, push it to one side. We try to brush over it. But the reality is we do face death, don't we? There are people here who've lost loved ones recently. And it confronts us. It's horrible. And we all of us face the fact that death awaits us. But we're in the dark about it. And being in the dark on so many of these things leads to all kinds of problems, doesn't it? Not all mental health problems are to do with being in the dark, but some are. Because they can lead to anxiety, depression, despair. Can all be caused by the darkness we live in. And Jesus comes to Capernaum and deliberately says, in, deliberately to show that he fulfills this prophecy. Verse 16, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. See, Jesus' mission is to bring light to those living in darkness. He brings, well, let's go back through the list, he brings religious light, doesn't he? Because he is the mighty God, the Lord. So we don't need to guess if God is there. Jesus is the Lord come to us. And he speaks words of eternal truth. We're going to see this later in Matthew's Gospel, if and when we ever get there. Because we're having a break to do Romans. 
but at some point we might get later on in Matthew's gospel and Jesus speaks very clearly about big eternal things heaven and hell he is unashamed to talk about these things he gives us religious light because he is God moral light he is quite prepared to say what is right and wrong and being the Lord he does so with authority so in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel he says what is right and wrong when it comes to murder anger adultery lust divorce and so on and actually it's very uncomfortable as you read it He gives light about identity. Again in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about relating to God as Father. We will only find our identity if we come to God and know him as our Father. And purpose. Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Don't make other things your purpose. They're never going to satisfy, but put God first. And death. He rose from the dead, defeating death, so that all who follow him will have life forever. Jesus is the light in a dark world and the central way he brings light to us is through his death because all those areas require us to be in relationship with God that's where we find our purpose our identity our meaning and he came to die so we could be forgiven and enter that relationship because the moral light he shines shows us that none of us live as we should We all fall short. So we need his death so we can be forgiven and come into his light. He came to bring light to those living in darkness, to those living in the land of the shadow of death. This is great news for you and me. It's the hope and light we, our neighbours, our family, work colleagues desperately need. And third, Jesus is called to repent. This is the response that he calls for. Verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, we saw a couple of weeks ago that this is exactly the same as John the Baptist's calling. Chapter 3, verse 2, it can be tempting at times to think, well, John the Baptist was just the wild, crazy one, uh, Jesus that's come to him. But actually, their message was the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And we concluded a couple of weeks ago that repentance is necessary. We acknowledge that it is a big deal. It is not just changing your mind or stopping doing something bad. It is a complete turnaround, a complete change. Or to use the imagery that we have here, it is to go from living in a land of darkness to come into the light and live in the light. And a Christian is one who has made that transition. They've come into the light and live in it. They have, to use other language that the New Testament uses, it changed kingdom. They have come back to God. And we need to make that change. 
If you haven't yet, I urge you to do so. Jesus calls you to repent. It is coming to the light. It is the wise thing to do, the good thing to do, the best thing to do. But we also need to recognise that while we may have made that fundamental change if you've become a Christian, we also need to see that the Lord needs to keep changing us, changing the way we act, think and feel. Because, you see, we're so used to living in the dark that even though we're now in the light, if you've become a Christian, we still think and act in the old ways. I think I've used this illustration before, but my my grandmother, who lived through the Second World War, still in some ways lived as if she was in the Second World War. Maybe you know people who were like this. Uh, She would still live as if food was scarce, and therefore, even buttering her bread, she, she, the phrase she would use was scrape on, scrape off, which was uh, made for, well, yeah, not delightful bread. But there you go. She would take the butter, she would scrape it on the bread, and then she would take the knife and scrape it off again, just leaving the thinnest of layers. Why? Because she wanted to preserve the food, keep as much as she could, spread it out. I don't think my grandfather particularly enjoyed that. That's how she lived. And she kept going like that. Even when she wasn't in the war. So we too, even Christians who've turned to God, we've moved from darkness to light, yet our actions, thoughts, our desires, our feelings can still be those of people living in darkness. And so Paul talks about us putting off the old ways and putting on the new way. It's sort of saying you've got to live like you are, like you're in the light. So put off the old ways and put on the new ways. Change your actions, he says. Get rid of things like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry, and so on, he says. Some of those are just actions that he says, you've just got to stop doing them. They're part of the old way. They're part of living in darkness. Don't live like that. And some are to do with thinking and desires and feelings. Living in the light will change our actions and our thoughts and our feelings. Because the reality is, even if you're a Christian, you're saying, yeah, I live in the light. We can still find that we're confused about our identity and purpose and about death, and about forgiveness. Because we're just so used to living in the darkness. It's become a habit to live that way. So we live in this life as constant ongoing projects, light projects, of God saying, well, now's the time to deal with this bit of darkness in your life. Come on, we need to shine the light on this bit. Those fears those anxieties, that despair. Come on. You're living as if you're in the darkness. But you've come into the light. So let's shine light into that area. It may be painful to begin with, but it is the way to greater freedom and joy. So we see in this passage... Matthew again takes us to see how Jesus' actions, just moving, moving house as it were, fulfills Old Testament prophecy. We see Jesus' identity, that he is the Lord. 
Jesus' mission to bring light to those living in darkness. And we see how to respond. Repent. Those who haven't done so yet, repent. Turn to the light of Jesus. If you're not sure, maybe you say, I don't know whether I have or not. I've kind of penciled it in in my life. Well, it'd be good to ink it in, wouldn't it? If you're not sure, maybe today, maybe just after the service, after the final hymn, just take a moment in here quietly. Just pray to God and say, Jesus, I turn to you, the light. I need you. I need your light in my life. I need your forgiveness. Turn to Jesus. Ink it in. And those who have, we need to keep letting Jesus' glorious light penetrate our hearts and lives. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that Jesus came to bring light to those living in darkness. Thank you, he is the light. And we pray that you would help those here who haven't yet turned to Jesus to turn to him, repent, bow before him, come into his light. Father, we pray that for our family and friends, neighbours, work colleagues who don't yet know you that they would turn to Jesus too. And for those who have done this, Father, please keep shining your light into our lives, exposing the darkness and shining your light into it. Keep changing us. Amen.